I have been accused in my uh, lessons of um, that my lessons have footnotes. Some people can look at that and say, "Oh man, I'm never gonna like this. Just never stops," mm -hmm. you know. But I'm like, it never stops. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, and welcome back to Stand Partners for Life. Really excited to be back once again with some extra special, I don't want to say unusual guests, but they're, they're not, not the usual ones for this show. Once again, my usual Stand Partner for Life, Akiko, is uh, away with the kids. And so um, today I'm happy to invite uh, not only the director of operations for the Virtuoso Master Course, um, but a longtime friend and excellent violist, Kate Reddish. So she is back. If you heard our episode with Kirsten Tenney, um, you'll remember her voice from there. And then I also have with me Travis Merrill, who's a violinist and violist. He has made the long and arduous journey up from San Diego. Uh, we can hear a little bit more about his life in San Diego there, but thank you so much for being with us today, Travis. Thank you so much, Nathan. I'm happy to be here. Um, Travis is a member of this year's Virtuoso Master Course, and uh, so Kate and I have been having a great time working with him. Kate, thanks for being back. Oh, so happy to be here. And I know Travis from like 20 years ago. Um, Let's not put a number on it, Kate. <laughs> <laughs> no, we were, um, we were both at USC at the same time, and uh, Travis was studying with the incomparable Ralph Fielding, who's and we used to call him the mini Ralph because um, because Ralph has a very pragmatic um, and rational brain, and and so does Travis. And so it's really fun to reconnect with you. Likewise. Well, and Travis now does so much teaching, and and we'll uh, we're going to talk about that. Let's let's take one step back. Actually, let's take a lot of steps back. <laughs> <laughs> let's give uh, everyone out there an idea of how and where you got started. Did you start on the viola, or did you do as, as so many have done and taste the evils of the violin first? <laughs> no, I had kind of an unusual start. Um, I started in the public schools in fifth grade, and I remember that the director of the string program demonstrated all the instruments, and she demonstrated the theme from Jaws on the viola, mm. and I thought that was really cool. And everybody that was signing up for orchestra was picking violin or cello, and I've always been a little bit of a contrarian. So I said I wanted to play the viola. Um, the only problem was that my mom didn't know what a viola was, so she came home uh, with a bass. And <laughs> so I played the bass for about two weeks until they found me another viola. And lugging that thing on and off the school bus was not a pleasant experience for me. Um, but anyway, I didn't last long. I quit actually after a year. Um, but my parents said I had to do some kind of music, so I played clarinet for a semester. Wow. And I hated that more, so I went back to orchestra, um, still on the viola. And that summer, I think it was my sixth grade, um, the thing I was really into at the time was actually martial arts, was taekwondo. And my mom, uh, as a good parent does, bribed me uh, by saying that <laughs> if I took this summer strings camp um, that I could take this class at my Taekwondo school where I was going to get to use swords. Wow. And so that worked. Uh, <laughs> and so I went to this camp. It was a strolling strings camp, which is not really a popular method anymore, but 
Um, in that method, you have to memorize folk tunes and you walk around the room playing them. Um, and I really connected with that teacher. His name was Mr. Halleck. And he became my first private teacher. And from there, I kind of just really got into it. You know, we actually, uh, you know, growing up in Kentucky and Lexington, there was a strolling strings group there. I think no. I knew all the kids in it. I may even have had an early date with one of the people in, in Strolling Strings. Um, so I heard all about the memorizing the tunes. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, maybe that was, uh, I think actually that's a, it's a perfect thing for people to get used fun. to doing. And I was lucky because he played, he taught violin, viola, cello, bass, guitar, and piano. But his main instrument was violin, viola. Um, and when he saw that I was like really into it, he really took a shine to me. And um, what happened, I did start playing violin, I think in ninth grade, because I was getting really bored of the viola parts. And <laughs> my orchestra director let me play the violin parts on viola for a while. And then finally, Mr. Halleck loaned me a violin. And then so I started playing violin and viola, um, kind of went off from there. But, but you had, you started taking private lessons in the sixth grade is that right at the end of yeah the so really seventh grade was when I started yeah okay mm -hmm. and uh, I mean at that point so you're getting into the teenage years I mean a lot of parents are or sort of have to let kids make their own decisions at that point was this pretty self-driven then I think so I think I I got kind of excited about it um, because I started off being pretty good at it and I think um, I, I mean, there were a lot of things I was like pretty good at, but there was never anything where I was like, oh, I can be first at this. You know, mm. like I was pretty soon I was like first chair in the orchestra. And that was a big motivator for me. Um, and then I was like, well, let me try out for some other stuff. And then I was like, you know, won some little regional orchestra things and then some competitions. And I think just being really good at something at that age um, really gave me an identity that like, oh, I'm a musician. And um you know, I'm good at this and I enjoy it. And also, I think just the community, um, you know, we had our, our orchestra uh, group that was like, you know, a real friend group and that was quite close and everybody kind of hung out. And um, I think that social aspect of it also, too, was self-perpetuating. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I, I needed that in high school, I think, as a kind of a differentiator for me. You know, I didn't have sports i mean I, I liked playing sports but i wasn't on the team actually come to think of it i was on the tennis team but that didn't get you a lot of uh, cachet <laughs> <laughs> in kentucky is a basketball baseball football soccer those were the and i didn't do any of those so for me it was like oh well i'm i'm an orchestra kid so there you go i don't yeah. know did you did you need that in high school kate or yeah i did um Unfortunately, I estranged myself from our high school orchestra conductor because I, I thought he was dumb. <laughs> so I ended up um, doing most of my um, orchestra playing uh, in La Sierra at the, with the Seventh-day Adventist community. I became kind of their, uh, their um, little extra person with blue hair at that point. <laughs> yeah, that seems like a niche resident violist for the... Seventh day Yeah, like I was the, the kind of scary girl who listened to punk music and also played viola at the church <laughs> with them. So, well, yeah, I mean, that you need to be able to connect with people. I mean, it's, it's uh, very few 
folks, I think, who are wired to just spend hours and hours in the practice room and, and just perfect their craft at that age without <laughs> some other kind of benefit. Yeah, you, mm -hmm. need, you need other people to help normalize it. Mm -hmm. And it's something really powerful about everybody's in the practice room and then kind of emerging from the practice room and commiserating and then going back um, and then talking about what you worked on. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, speaking of the sports teams, I mean, they get that all the time. You're not, if you're on the basketball team in high school, you're not spending four hours a day on dribbling drills and then once a week getting together to <laughs> play. I mean, you're, you're playing together and you're getting coached all the time. Um, hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. Actually, <laughs> yeah, maybe a little late for me. Um, well, the did you like drills. playing? <laughs> I've, I've got the basketball goal yeah, right out here. Go. It's right over there. <laughs> um, did you enjoy playing in orchestra then? At that point? Yeah, I think so. Um, again, I, I think a largely a social experience, and um, a little bit farther down the line, I had a, a really good orchestra director in high school, and it was the same one. I didn't mentioned at the beginning, I grew up in Stillwater, Oklahoma, which is a one middle school, one junior high, one high school town. So I had, <laughs> I had the same orchestra director, you know, from junior high through high school. Um, and he was very kind and um, giving me a lot of opportunities to do solos and stuff like that. I had a one concert I remember where I played a movement of the Stamets Concerto and movement of Mozart three and a movement from one of the Four Seasons, like all in the same concert. Nice. So, you know, that was really invaluable experience that I think a lot of people don't get. And I'm just really, really grateful for that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's easy to underestimate the, the small town experience. I mean, Lexington's not a small town exactly, but right, the fact that I wasn't surrounded by uh, 20 other... <laughs> Uh, serious violin kids meant right that I got to play a lot of solos I got mm -hmm. even to try my hand at conducting certainly teaching yeah my classmates um, and I never would have had that in a right like a Cleveland or Juilliard pre-college type did you conduct your school orchestra or is other groups or uh, yeah when our orchestra director was sick or otherwise engaged or something you know if she had to help right help a bass player change her string mm -hmm that takes like 45 minutes and so you know then I'd get to conduct dances with wolves and nice That's a, that was for... the same for me yeah it wasn't dances with wolves although we did do that one um, <laughs> it was I remember conducting actually like part of uh, Tchaikovsky serenade for strings oh wow you had the advanced school <laughs> yeah. Wow! Yeah, dances with wolves. Well, we did we did dances with wolves, and I remember Aladdin and the Lion oh, King. Yeah. We did all of those like in junior high and then in high schools, mm. a little more intense. Yeah, when you mentioned band, yeah, the marching, I was marching a big thing? And yeah, yeah it's the marching band kids were big. Yeah, that was a big click. Same with me in Kentucky. So, yeah, they were doing the big, you know, one year I know it was Les Mis. Mm. And, right, they're, they're out there doing their own thing, and we had our less, less glamorous <laughs> orchestra life. But, well, it's um, all in support of the football teams, right? So that's what's really important at the high school right. in, uh, in Oklahoma or Kentucky. Yeah. <laughs> Oh man, that, that I, I can. My kids are not getting into football. I'll, I'll <laughs> tell you that. Well, um, at what point, you know, everybody has that. Whether it's one moment or sort of one school year that that you decide this is for you and you're gonna go on to do it in some fashion. Did you have a 
specific idea of what you wanted or just a general sense? I'm not sure. Um, I knew I was really serious about it. I was really lucky to have really supportive parents, um, my mom in particular, who really kind of seeked out every opportunity that she could outside of where we were living. Um, and I think when I was 13, my whole family drove us out to this uh, camp in Maine with the Portland String Quartet. It was Waterville, Maine at Colby College. Hmm. Um, and it was a very small quartet program. And it was one of those sort of two week intensive things where you just work on one quartet. We did Mendelssohn Opus 13, I think. Hmm. Um, yeah. And, or wait, maybe it was Opus 12. I don't know, it doesn't matter. Um, but, but I remember just loving that. And um, it was my first time really being around other people that were really serious about it and I got a ton of energy from that and then I went to that camp again the next year and then the year after that um, went to the quartet program um, that Charlie Castleman's program hmm. um, which is another 36 people seven weeks um, and you learn two quartets and then in between that there's a sonata week um, and I just remember the, the sort of intensity of the connections that I made mm -hmm. with people there and the intensity of working together and you know socializing together and all that kind of stuff it was that was a really transformative experience for me and really just meeting people who were it was half high school half college so there were people there that were at you know conservatories and big universities and so meeting those people and talking to them about that experience was really exciting for me um, so i knew i wanted to major in it i just wasn't sure for a long time if I wanted to do it as a career. Um, mm. So when I applied for colleges, um, I didn't actually apply at any conservatories. I only applied at universities that had really good music schools. Um, and that's how I end up at, ended up at USC. Um, and there I, they had a, a program called um, Thematic Option, which was like an honors program. So, you know, we were supposed to read the Iliad in like three weeks and then, you know, write a 10 page paper about it. and then Mr. McGinnis, who I started studying with at the time, was like, well, we've got to practice four hours a day, too. <laughs> so figuring out how to do those two things at the same time uh, was an interesting project, um, which I wasn't so successful at. Uh, but yeah, I was sort of balancing those interests because I had a lot of interest in other things besides music um, and wasn't sure yet if you know I was 100% wanted to go down that road. Um, and I think I thought I could sort of just not commit for a long time, mm. you know, and just sort of, you know, do both of those things sort of half and half um, for as long as possible. And well, yeah, yeah. I, I think that's a more, it's a more valid way to go than I, I think some people would, would admit. What happened mm. to the swords, by the way? The oh, the swords. Um, I think I have a couple of them still in my mom's garage. Did you continue with? No. With oh, well, so the story with that is... Um, when I was 15, uh, I did my test for my first degree black belt. And towards the end of the test, um, I had to do a board break with something called a knife hand strike, um, which is supposed to be like this. All the podcast listeners can see my visual demonstration. <laughs> um, so you're supposed to hit it sort of with the side of your hand between your wrist and the joint of your, your first joint of your pinky said I hit it right on the pinky oh. and I did that repeatedly <laughs> um, so I broke that finger um, and I still had all my sparring left to do after that was over so I had to do my sparring with what I didn't know at the time was a broken finger uh, and then after that um, you know spent like six weeks in a cast 
um, on my right hand. And that was when I, that was an inflection point for me when I sort of realized, okay, I like doing this stuff, but music is, you know, more what I'm into. So I stopped doing Taekwondo, like, um, I think seven months after I got that black belt. So, okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Not entirely compatible. <laughs> I wish they were a little more compatible, but yeah, there are definitely some martial arts that I think are more, there's a lot of musicians, I think that practice some form of martial arts, but um, mm -hmm. some of them, some parts of martial arts are not so compatible with, <laughs> uh, like breaking boards with your hands. I was going to say, I'll, if I ever look into it, I'll avoid the, the board breaks. Um, I'm curious, I mean, so once you got to college, and, and this was real college, not sometimes I call conservatory clown college, like, <laughs> like I went to. Um, you know, once you got there, I mean, w was it easy for you to kind of identify with the other music students there, or d did they seem sort of like a, a separate breed, or, or was it kind of a natural continuation from the people you'd hung out with I mean, in high school? I think, I think the clique that I found, um, in a sense, at USC were also the kind of chamber music nerds. Mm -hmm. um, the I had a serious quartet in, uh, in college, um, with uh, two people that live not far from here, actually, that are both yeah. in in the LA Chamber Orchestra now, um, and I think that that was sort of my click was people that were really passionate about chamber music. I still wasn't really into orchestra, um, and actually, I don't know if Kate knows this, but when I decided to switch teachers, um, I also switched degrees. So I started off as a bachelor of music and. I found out that if I did the Bachelor of Arts, I only had to do two years of orchestra. Uh. <laughs> so at that point, I'd already done my two years of orchestra, so I, uh, you know, I pretty much finished that requirement in there. Uh, so that was a that was a good uh, degree hack. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I also had to switch teachers in the middle of uh, school, um, and that that wasn't entirely my choice. What what was that like for you? It was it was tricky. I was realizing that, um, you know, in my lessons, that I was getting um, more of the kind of information that I felt that I needed um, from one teacher. Because at the time, I was taking from two people at the same time. Oh, I see. Um, and uh, I ended up feeling more connected um, to uh, Ralph, who um, Kate mentioned earlier. And even though I would only see him for 20 minutes a week, I felt like I was getting a lot of information in those 20 minutes. And I was, came out of the lesson feeling like I was playing better than when I went in. And I was like, well, I want more of that. <laughs> um, so part of the switching of degrees was my somewhat transparent political way of also changing teachers. Um, oh. And because at the time, the other teacher I was te studying with, Mr. McGinnis, um, said that he didn't teach BAs because they didn't have enough time to practice. Um, of course, I actually didn't have to do orchestra, so I had a lot more time to practice because <laughs> <laughs> of that. So I don't um, know anyone who actually practiced four hours a day. No, well, yeah, I mean, I, Sayaka maybe? I did that for six weeks where I was actually really practicing for four hours a day and actually doing all of my homework. And then I remember very clearly, it was like three o'clock in the morning, I was finishing a paper 
and realizing I had another paper that was due the following day, and I was just like, I can't, I can't sustain both of these things <laughs> at the same rate. Um, and of course, what I didn't realize going back to that, you know, reading the Iliad in two weeks is my classmates weren't reading the Iliad in two weeks. <laughs> they were, they were, you know, using Cliff's notes and like skimming things, and I was like dutifully reading every line and you know taking notes and doing all that kind of stuff and. So I learned that the hard way that, you know, it wasn't possible. Yeah, but look at look at where it's left you. That's I right. mean, that's I, some work ethic and, <laughs> and some brains. <laughs> now, I tried the four-hour practice stuff sometimes, but I was never doing any homework. So yeah. that's the... Right. The only yeah. time I consistently did four hours was in VMC1. Mm. Um, I was getting ready for two auditions, and I brought my spreadsheets. <laughs> and Nathan <laughs> told me to get everything I wanted to get done, it would probably be four hours. And so... Um, I, it's the only time I've done it consistently for any period of time. It was a couple of months. It was pretty awesome. Like yeah. I felt, you I felt a lot great. Done. And then, <laughs> uh, you know, on the days when it's like, it'd been three hours, I'm like, I want wine. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think the other thing too, is that, you know, um, the instruction was practice for four hours. There is no instruction of how to practice yeah. or right. what to practice. Just do it. It was just do that. And I feel like that's something that can be injurious. For sure, injurious and also it's just not a great, you know, use of time in general. Right. Well, it's kind of like, you know, ha setting that schedule and maintaining that schedule. To me, it's always kind of like you're carrying around a big knapsack, you know, or like a big water jug or something. And if you're if you're filling that with <laughs> you can fill it with twinkies or you can fill it with <laughs> stuff that's actually going to get you through a journey but the, nobody ever tells you what to pack right. you know yeah and so you you might as well just carry something smaller right. and have it <laughs> well and that was one of the things i really loved about studying with ralph is um ralph had really concrete mm -hmm. suggestions for how to practice i think that's one of the topics that that participants bring to me frequently is, you know, how do I do all this practicing? And I wish that somebody had helped me with that. Ralph was really, was really great in that regard. I realized I called him incomparable and then promptly compared you to him, but, <laughs> <laughs> but he's, he's a really special teacher, but so are you. Um, but I, I think that Nathan has a really great um, mindset around how to approach practicing no matter how much time you have. And um, what would always happen to me back in those USC days is I'd go in the practice room and I'd start with my scales and that would take like two hours. Yeah. And then I would like, <laughs> and then I would do my Kreutzer and that would take like, an, an, I'd get like a line in and, I, and then I'd, I'd go into my lesson where I was supposed to have like Bartok Concerto memorized and I couldn't do any of it. Um, and so, like pro tip, Nathan has a has a kind of a, a ratio. Like it should never be more than a third of your practice is your scale and warm up routine. And so, is that right? Yeah, I, I think that's ish. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. If you're spending a lot more time than that, then you probably right. And like incremental progress is where it's at. Like being able to um, do something consistently many days in a row rather than um, like trying to solve an entire issue. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think if you make the parallel to like working out, mm -hmm. if you're going to work out and destroy yourself, um, 
you know, in one session, then that means you're going to need a long time for recovery in between in order to actually do something again. You're not going to run a marathon today and then run another marathon tomorrow unless you're David Goggins, that crazy guy. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but no, I think that's, that's really important that I think uh, Nathan captures that really well. I think the, you know, my introduction to that was the Olympics and this idea of this, how this little two-week unit, in two weeks you can, you know, set up a technical foundation for how to learn a piece. You can learn a piece in a week and get it to a pretty great level, but then you can use that two-week block cumulatively so that then over the course of the time you're actually, you know, making somewhat exponential progress over the course of that um, of that summer and that was um, that was really a fantastic you know experience for me doing that first Biolympics um, and I think I told you this but I pretty much I just kept that going after the Biolympics was over That's so awesome. um, I just like you know gave myself assignments uh, of the same kind where I'm like okay where well, I'm gonna learn this movement of this Rager Sonata this week and then in two weeks I'll do the next movement and then the next and then the next and I just kept posting you know videos of that to Facebook and um, that became a great generator of inertia over time because I could see how that was also just helping my general playing you know raise the level um, over time in some great ways. Mm. Well I'm, I'm really happy you know the the you got so much out of the Olympics, you know as a professional and someone who teaches also, um, you know, that, that makes me happy. And yeah, that, that idea of constantly setting small goals and, and actually putting a sort of a capstone on each one in your case, you know, recording and posting a video, you know, you're not even necessarily concerned with who's going to see the video or how many people are going to see it, but, but just having done that, yeah. it's different from most of the projects I took on either by myself or was asked to take on in school or growing up, you know, these huge, learn this concerto and perform it six months from now. Mm. Um, you know, that's, that's a big, um, and yeah, you need that time to learn a piece, but it's hard to know how to organize that or yeah. what, what the steps are going to be. Yeah. Um, well, and I think I, I think I told you this, but after that first Phi Olympics, um, I was so enamored with the format that I decided to take that format and do it with my college students yeah. um, and uh, one of my college students came up with the name the Alto Olympics since yeah. I have all viola students yeah. that I teach at San Diego State University and um, but it was really you know it was surprising I was like oh these students are they're gonna be so into it they're gonna be so into like you know seeing the progress over time and unfortunately it's it's a bit different for college students who feel like they're just getting another assignment <laughs> handed <laughs> to them than it is for you know someone who's out of school and realizing the benefit of that kind of consistent work over time. I know that that's the big problem because once you're out of school, no one's no one's giving you any mm -hmm. assignments, and you crave it. Well, let's. Uh, what happened when you when you left school? Where where were you? Where were you? Let's see. So headed? I I went from USC to Rice University. I did my master's there, and I loved Rice. It's a, a great school, wonderful facilities, and just the the orchestra there. It's the first time I really enjoyed playing in orchestra in a really long time. Um, Larry Ratcliffe, who was their amazing conductor who passed away over the summer, um, was just a very inspiring figure. Um, and he got everyone to just want to play their best for him, which was, which was awesome. Um, by the second year of Rice, I was still not sure what I wanted to do uh, with my life. 
and so I asked if I could stay a third year um, and I had actually started taking um, some courses uh, in the pre-medical field because I was interested in possibly becoming a doctor so my last year of grad school I took calculus wow. <laughs> and um, so my I had received clearance and funding to stay for an extra year and play an orchestra take lessons and then just do pre-med classes um, and I'd kind of felt the whole time in music school that I had not um, really invested myself fully in just trying to do music as well as I could. Um, like I'd kind of done it all sort of at 70% and not 100%. And so that summer I was going to Aspen and there was a concerto competition at Aspen um, that I thought I could win because it was on the Walter Piston Viola Concerto. And I was like, there are not going to be a lot of people entering a competition with the Walter <laughs> Piston Viola Concerto. Um, it was my third summer there. Um, and so uh, I just decided, like, I'm going to work as hard as I can and see if I can win this thing. Um, and I ended up winning it. And um, in the performance of that, um, someone who I had known actually from quartet program um, heard me and recommended me to a quartet that had a viola opening, um, the Hyperion Quartet. And the Hyperion Quartet was just about to come out to San Diego um, to have a residency at San Diego State University. And so they came to Aspen um, and they auditioned two people in the festival, which at the time was like, you know, an 800 person festival. <laughs> and the other person that they were auditioning just happened to be my stand partner <laughs> in the orchestra I was playing with. Um, so we both auditioned for it and they offered me the position and I decided to take it and moved out to San Diego. Was the rest of the summer okay sitting together in orchestra? <laughs> it was fine, yeah, we're still friends. <laughs> <laughs> These things happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, wow, so had you ever imagined joining a professional string quartet? I mean, as I mentioned, chamber music was always really kind of uh, my favorite part of doing music. Um, you know, for viola, it's got the best parts. Mm -hmm. And it's, I really love, I think one of the reasons I don't love playing in orchestra as much as I love playing in chamber music is I really feel like I have some agency mm. and I have some say in what I'm doing. And of course, as a principal, I think in an orchestra, you can have some of that. Um, but in a quartet, I think it's a very different, a different kind of agency. And so, yeah, I mean, in, in grad school, again, I had another serious quartet and I knew I loved playing chamber music. And so I was like, well, if I've got a chance to try it, I might as well. <laughs> and you had the residency um, at SDSU for how long? That was a two-year residency, um, and that quartet, uh, we, they had existed, I think, for, I'm not sure how many years before I met, but um, it was, a, the two violinists were sisters, and the first violinist was married to the cellist, um, so I was the only person unrelated by blood or marriage, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, which was challenging, mm -hmm. um, and we decided after, I decided after a year with them that I didn't think long term it was going to work out and um, they also wanted to move back to the east coast and I really loved San Diego and wanted to stay there. Um, part of the terms of me coming to San Diego um, were that I would have a faculty position um, at the school and so I started off and uh, or stayed and, and continued to, to teach there. Yeah. So how long has it been? Well, I finished with the quartet in 2007 and it's 2022 so 15 years. Nice. <laughs> well, you. As far as the teaching side of things, uh, had you taught either 
during your college time or I know you mentioned in high school you did a little bit like I did. Yeah, I taught, um, I remember, I think some of the first teaching I did was helping other students with like Allstate excerpts mm -hmm. um, and a couple people came over and would play stuff for me and I'd give them feedback. Um, both my parents are teachers. Um, my dad's a professor and uh, my mom was a professor for a while. They even started their own private school for a while called oh. the Merrill School when we were living in South Texas. Um, and I always loved teaching. Um, I really like, I get excited by ideas about things and I enjoy sharing those ideas. And um, I really enjoy the one-on-one -on -one interaction. I really enjoy the problem solving. Um, I really enjoy all the different sorts of um, personalities that you get to meet and learning styles and figuring out what works with different people. Um, so yeah, I had taught some in a little bit in high school, a little bit informally in undergrad. And then in graduate school, um, I joined the, Rice had a preparatory uh, music school that was mostly staffed by graduate students. Hmm. And so I taught a few students in that. And then when I came out to San Diego, I started teaching a lot more. Wow, and so, well, everything you just said about teaching, yeah. Uh, I think it was, it was destined that we were gonna find each other somehow, because <laughs> I, I agree with all of that. Um, so when you, when you did the Violympics, and I have to say, you were such an important part of that, that Violympics community. Thank you. And, and that community experience was uh, very important for a lot of the participants um, during the summers. And so hundreds of people who participated there also got to know you over, over distance, at least, <laughs> uh, with, through all the help that you, you offered them. I suppose you and Kate interacted a fair amount during the Violympics. Um, well, yeah, for the second Violympics, we had introduced the idea of VMC ambassador rooms. So we had current VMC members come and just have a like casual or structured class. Um, we had a viola group that we called the Viola Pavilion. And um, <laughs> Travis would show up to the Viola Pavilion and, and wow us all. And then he uh, reached out to me and said he'd like to um, teach his own class on um, title coordination or Roland. Um, yeah, I think I did two. I did one on Paul Roland, and I think I, I had a clever name for it, which I was proud of, called Hacking Virtuosity. Oh <laughs> um, These names uh, are important, by the way. <laughs> um, so yeah, that was the first one. And then um, Brenton Caldwell and I co-led uh, co one on Karen Tuttle, because right. he had worked with Karen Tuttle a lot. I'd worked with her some, and then with a bunch of her students. And I just, I just want to acknowledge the initiative of reaching out to me to ask to do that. And I mean, of course, like, because I knew you and I know how awesome you are, I, um, I was very comfortable, like, allowing... Yeah, you took a big risk. I was a non-VMC person. I know, I know. How pavilion. could you possibly have anything to say? No, <laughs> um, no it's, but that is, I mean, that is, I, I think that that speaks to your approach to all the things that you do so well, is being um, proactive and at home in your mastery. <laughs> I'm going to put that on my website. <laughs> Go for it. Please. I love that. Go for it. I, no, I'm a big Travis Merrill fan. Oh, well, thank you, Kate. I'm yeah. a big Kate Reddish fan. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that was, the Violympics was great. I, you know, the first one um, during COVID, the very, very first part of COVID, I think, um, you know, that first one brought a really interesting mix of amateurs and professionals and everything in between. 
Um, and it was my first time really interacting in a forum of that kind. I hadn't really been a member of any Facebook groups or things like that where I would engage with other people about um, that. And I am a total pedagogy nerd, so I'm happy, like, if someone asks a question about, like, my thumb hurts, like, <laughs> you know, like, well, try this, try this, try this. And I enjoy that stuff. Um, and, you know, it's, I think as a teacher, um, working with people or interacting with people who are eager and ready to receive information um, is one of the most enjoyable things, you know, for a teacher. That's that's something I totally stole from Mimi Zweig. She talked about just being, people being ready to receive information. Mm. Mm-hmm. And sometimes if you've got great information, but the person is not ready to receive it, it doesn't matter how good it was. And that's sort of for myself when I think about how I was as a college student. I think a lot of times I was given a lot of really great information that I was not ready to receive, either just because I thought I was above it or just because I didn't care or whatever. But, uh, but yeah, in the, in the Violympics community, I really found a group of people who were so eager to hear that kind of information, hungry for it, really. Yeah. Um, and I really enjoyed that, that interaction. And, um, you know, and I learned a lot from other people in that group as well. They're sharing things that I hadn't seen before, or ideas or topics or whatever. And um, I'm just curious too, like, did you anticipate that kind of community coming, springing up around that first Olympics, or was that a surprise to you or were you hoping that was gonna come or? I mean, I had, I had high hopes for a community coming together and having fun with the challenges. That, it really did exceed, I would say it exceeded my hopes and expectations for how many people there were, but also just what you said, how interested and how eager everyone was in the same minutia the same questions that I asked myself, mm-hmm. um, I, I had sort of gotten used to teaching as, you know, as what it always had been for me growing up. You know, there's a, there's a teacher and there's a student. The teacher is undoubtedly, you know, the master. They're hopefully playing better and they, they know more. And it's, it's kind of a one-way street. Um, and I had really great teachers, uh, who who worked like that and I had some uh, like my teacher through high school Dan Mason um, who enjoyed the back and forth as well but I certainly had never been part of a big learning group and so when when that first Olympics community came together and everyone was working on the assignments that I had dreamed mm. up and then going beyond those you know asking why you know, mm-hmm. why do you do it this way and what what if we did it this way and I'm going to actually just teach a class that does it this other way. <laughs> and then I, 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 could, I could look at that and be like, wow, this, this person, they're not even a professional, but they th- I think they may have thought about this more than I had. Great. Yeah. So yeah. that was, was a complete surprise to me. But yeah, it, it was more than what I'd hoped for. Yeah. Well, your programs, um, Nathan, tend to be kind of a no competition zone, which I think is is not always the case in music education. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, certainly there's a lot of, I mean, Travis, you mentioned being really motivated by being first chair. And I remember like challenge, you know, challenge auditions where you <laughs> try to like knock the person out of their chair. Mm-hmm. And, um, Death matches yeah, in and just Yeah, or, and we've talked about the um, professional environment as lovely as it is not being one of of necessarily wanting to dissect the minutiae of, <laughs> of how to play the instrument. 
And so it's so, I remember, um, especially that first Olympics, because everything had just shut down and it was such like, it was so moving to see all those people um, coming together. I remember the photos, people were so excited. <laughs> like there was a picture with a violin case and the violin like artfully propped and then um, the printed out worksheets and then yeah. a loaf of bread and a rose or something like that. It was so fantastic. And um, I also, it sounds like in being eager to answer those questions, it's like you're in your genius zone. Like when it doesn't feel like work or when it, when it just sounds like something fun that you want to do and then it ends up being enormously helpful, that's, um, that is such a powerful place to get to, I think. Sure, yeah. And um, yeah, I just go back to, to just that idea of people being eager to receive the information. Mm -hmm. And I think really too, regardless of level, I mean, that, that was the thing too, is like it doesn't matter if a person's, you know, playing in Suzuki book one or they're playing in Suzuki book 20. Um, <laughs> if they're, you know, if they're really excited and eager to receive the information, um, like I'm, I'm excited to work with them. Um, and, and that was, that was really great. Well, it's funny, Kate, you said the, the Olympics were a oh, right. non competitive <laughs> but it was In fact, it, That's yeah. That's a good segue. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, and it's funny, I, I'm not, I think different people took the competition more or less seriously and it, it was there as a motivation for those who wanted it. And whether you were aiming for it or not, Travis, you ended up winning the second. I took the that second. competition seriously. Well, yeah, I mean, you, you did in terms of, you, you know, your, your preparation and the yeah. execution. I mean, winning, so that second Olympics, it was all new commissioned pieces. And mm -hmm. so what you had to do was to, to learn all six of those and, you know, make a, a video recording of them. And these uh, videos were judged not only by the composers of the pieces, and the, these pieces were written just for our group, um, but some pretty big name violinists. Who did we have judging? We had Gil Shaham and Augustine Hadelik. Kirsten um, Long. Kirsten Leong. Uh, James uh, Ennis. James Badgley. Ennis, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, Noah? Jenny Coe. Jennifer Coe, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Apologies to any, anyone else. <laughs> How many left did you out. go? Is it Gilshaham? Uh, I remember all I of them. I even remember the order. Yeah. It was like Kirsten and then, no, Jenny, Jenny Kirsten, James. Uh -huh. Noah Bendix Bagley. Aug Augustine, Noah, mm -hmm. Gilshaham. Okay. Okay, there good. Go. Well, there, there are six. So yeah. <laughs> so no no slouches. No, yeah, and, for sure. And you, yeah, you took home the gold. Um, On the viola. I know. <laughs> Actually, we, and we didn't even have separate sort of divisions for the yeah <laughs> for the prizes i think there were a lot of violists that were very proud of that particular. i know <laughs> that was a that was an achievement um yes and you know as as part of your prize you were invited to to come into the vmc for the first month this past year and i i was excited to to have you be part of that group because i knew you'd be a natural fit um and then that uh you made the decision at the end of that time to to, to stay yes <laughs> stay in the group and and so started working Once with we got our hooks in them <laughs> <laughs> well it also happened at a very fortunate time because it must have been in the stars because i had a bow that had been for sale for 10 years wow that just suddenly sold and freed up some extra income too that i was like okay well hey here we go this is a sign i am meant to be taking the vmc right now. <laughs> well around that time then you got to start working with kate much more closely um, because you you had not only playing goals that, that you were after, but uh, teaching 
goals as well. That's true. Yeah. I, um, so like I said, I was really inspired by the first Phi Olympics and I did sort of a beta test of my own program with my college students. Um, and then after the second Phi Olympics, several people in that program reached out to me and asked if I taught online. And I, over that summer, thought about doing my own online course. And um, it's like, well, people are asking me to do it. I might as well try it. Yep, <laughs> just say yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, so I scrambled and I put something together and, um, and it went well. And, but I had, you know, I knew I had a lot of room for improvement in that. And I knew that if I could, part of my goal in doing the BMC was to learn from the best, to learn the person who's been doing this online thing for a lot longer, who's, you know, got a great structure and a great um, understanding of how these things work. Um, and having access to Kate with that, to talk to her about my goals with the program were really helpful, um, especially just recently when we were, um, when I was doing the second launch of my course, String Gym uh, <laughs> 2.0. Right. <laughs> The second cohort. <laughs> That's right. Um, she was uh, immensely helpful in helping me to not only structure the sort of organizational goals of that, but also I was, you know, it's like any sequel. It's like always the thing you struggle with, mm -hmm. right? And I was struggling a lot, um, just feeling blocked in a lot of ways uh, in terms of how I was going to... I was. I was basically trying to do things all perfectly and you know to make it as good as possible when really if i just made it a little bit better things were going to be fine uh and so she was great in helping me through that process and um helping me with um, some of the nuts and bolts of the strategy and other things like that which is really great and then also just um on the playing side of things we spoke towards the beginning of the program about the kinds of goals that i had um, on the instrument which were really kind of developing more freedom musically and also continuing to just, you know, hone my technical chops. And yeah, I feel very like all of those things have really come to pass really well. It's been yeah. really fun to yeah. watch them come to pass, <laughs> like to really see, I can really see you choosing the freedom over the, you know, like over like trying to be, not make mistakes. Perfect, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, any mistakes you make are, hardly audible but it's like the to make that choice and to take that risk is really I think the only way to develop any skill at it yeah well and I think too I mean how rare is it for people now to have access to the kind of this kind of instruction but to also be able to do it in such a way that you have the mental space and emotional room to grow in a comfortable way and not be like, I'm doing this because I have to win this audition, you right. know? Yeah. Um, and I think that's really important because I think there's a different kind of space that's allowed when you're not just trying to perfect 30 seconds of Don Juan, um, <laughs> you know, and that was never really my goal. Um, my goal was to feel like I could get more of the sounds that were in my head mm. out of the instrument. Um, and so, you know, having access to the community and Nathan, um, having access to amazing master classes like the one we had a few weeks ago, Kim Kashkashian, uh, all of those things I think really contributed to that in some powerful ways. Well, it probably surprises some people too, just the, the idea that you as a professional teacher and performer would 
Right, would continue to, <laughs> to seek answers. You know, aren't you supposed to know it all at this point? Yeah, and, that's and such a great point. And it's, it's like kind of a surprising idea, isn't it? That like we would just reach some zenith and then, or apex, and then that's it. You just stay there for the rest of your life. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, as we all know, the more you're aware of, the more room there is to get better. And I mean, I've always been inspired by that Pablo Casals you know, quote about him, you know, well, you're 80 years old, why you continue to practice for three hours a day? He's like, well, I think I'm still getting better. <laughs> um, but yeah, it is, it is interesting that I think there are sometimes, even, I'm sure there are professionals that reach a certain level and are like, okay, well, I'm happy there. I'm just going to stay there for a while. And um, I get bored. <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, I think setting those continually, incrementally higher goals, um, is important because then it makes you feel like, well, there's always more room for improvement. I think some people can look at that and say, oh man, I'm never going to, like, this just never stops, mm -hmm. you know, but I'm like, it never stops. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can just keep going. <laughs> I vacillate between the two. I'm like, oh. Yeah. But I've, I've seen that in you as well, Nathan. Um, you're always asking, or you're often asking, not always, but asking, you know, a soloist to listen to you on break. At, or I remember you talking when you were at Chicago, you played for Baron Boym a bunch of times and mm -hmm. just like seeking feedback. Um, and the, I don't think there's, you ever get too old to be coached. No, not at all. And it, it's funny, um, I was just re-watching so if anybody hasn't watched the michael jordan 10-part oh. documentary the last <laughs> dance it's uh especially if you have uh you know any interest in basketball or the nba it's even if you don't dynamite i think even if you don't yeah i was i was into basketball out. for 10 um, episodes yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah a netflix but, thing or uh yeah it's on netflix okay. and um not a sponsor <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> the one of the more amazing moments of it is uh you know, for anybody who wasn't aware, Michael Jordan retired, or so everyone thought. He quit midway through his big championship run um, for a variety of reasons, and everyone was stunned. You know, how could you quit after on top, you know, after winning three championships? And after being away for a year and a half, he started toying. Everybody could tell he was toying with the idea of coming back. Warner Brothers signed him to appear in a movie that would become Space Jam. Um, and during the filming of that, Jordan required that he be able to do full workouts. So they actually built him a full-size gym and basketball court. Oh, wow. And once everyone knew that he was in Hollywood doing these daily workouts, uh, all the best players in the country sort of descended on this little makeshift gym just to work out with him. And of course he invited that and cultivated it. So some of the greatest sort of shirts and skins basketball games oh, wow. that ever happened and they have footage of this and they all talk about it reverentially mm. like oh this we we could see each other play casually you know we could we could get a sense of each other's strengths and weaknesses mm -hmm. and, and figure some things out in this casual setting mm. um, and it became a really formative thing for a lot of them and, and it really jump-started his on-ramp back to the game mm. so yeah I, I you know if a season in an orchestra with a whole bunch of soloists and conductors coming through can ever be like that, that that's, how I, that's how I love to see it. But do you find, too, I mean, when you come up with a new idea, I mean, it's great to 
try it on yourself. You know, you want to see that it works. But I mean, isn't it so much better to try it out with the people you're working with too? For sure. Yeah, I think um, that for me, it's the feedback loop of getting some sort of idea, trying it out myself, trying it with my students. And when I try it with my students is when I really realize, am I able to actually communicate this idea? Right. And because I can feel like I understand it clearly in my head, and then I can try it with somebody and realize I'm not explaining it in a way that, that makes sense. Um, but since I have so many students, uh, I have lots of times to you know try that out in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, and then on top of that, for me, the other feedback loop of that, that really started actually with after the first Olympics, um, is just writing about it too. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I started after the first Olympics keeping much more detailed practice journals um, and I mean, I totally geeked out on it. I had like Evernote and was, you know, linking things here and there and like had little know. templates and stuff like that. But I <laughs> It's like the combination. <laughs> combination of you and me. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I realized that, you know, that actually forcing myself to write about that stuff really um, also helped me clarify those ideas in a different way. And doing my string gym course last year and having to make videos about it constantly every single week, um, same thing. That helped me to sort of craft my ability to communicate those things clearly. And yeah, I mean, this last class that we had with Kim Kashkashian, which I think for my money, for the, I mean, the density of ideas in that class. Yeah. Um, I mean, I watched that whole thing at least three times. Um, I've already written one blog post about it that got, a, in the viola world, a lot of attention. <laughs> what did you say? Are you, she, she's catnip for violist? I said catnip for violist, yeah. Yeah, Kim Kardashian is catnip for violist. I was just joking about it with Kate before we started recording because, um, you know, I have a, I have a decent size audience that, that reads my blog posts. Um, and I had four times as many people read that post in five days mm. um, as I did, you know, for lots of lots of the other things. But it was also just because she said some really amazing things. And um, to be able to chew on that and put it into my own understanding about how the instrument works um, was just another way for me to internalize that on a deeper level, I think. I think that's so important that um, I sometimes think of that as digestion. And that's the problem I have with people who either say, well, you, 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 you can't or you shouldn't just steal an idea from someone else. Um, well, we, you shouldn't steal. You should give credit, of course. But, um, or what I see more often are people who are afraid to simply take an idea from someone else because they're afraid of not being original. Mm. And, you know, they fail to realize that once you've digested something. It's different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's always going to be different. And, and I think the best ideas, how many truly original ideas are there i mean know? especially on our instrument that's been played for you know as many hundred years as it has and um yeah i think that's that's a really important point is that I, although i have been accused in my uh lessons of um that my lessons have footnotes because i make so many references oh yeah i got this from you know, this is a paul <laughs> roland idea or like oh nathan shared this with me or oh we like so i, I think that credit part is important um, but yeah, to realize exactly as you're saying, as soon as you take something in and then you put it back out, it's already been changed by you. Um, and it's something different than what it started as. You should just maybe start out 
working with the student by handing them a giant uh, like work cited. It's just so funny because I've never really written academic papers uh -huh. like on the instrument. But yeah, I think my sometimes my lessons are a little bit. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny in that you will be able to reach different people than the original. You know, Kim, I, I was at that Kim class. It was definitely solid gold. I'll never forget it. And yeah, my, one of my favorite parts of that was seeing you get your instrument out and try some of the things like as she was talking about. Yeah, it. on mute. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, the way that you have taken, take any one of her ideas, uh, the way that you have taken it and will then communicate it to your students, um, it's quite possible that she wouldn't have been able to reach that student. True. Mm -hmm. um, like you said, they, they wouldn't have been ready to hear her. Mm -hmm. Um, but they're ready to hear you in the way that you offer it. Um, so, yeah, for anybody who's afraid to... <laughs> yeah, we grasp and develop. It's like you take in information and then you... Even the fact that you're pulling from Paul Roland and Nathan Cole and Kim Kashkashian in the same lesson mm -hmm. is makes it a unique lesson. Right. Yeah, because, yeah, as people, we all... How we process the, organ, the information, but also how we organize the information presented is going to be different. Yeah. Um, and yeah, how that's received is, is also different. How I present it may be different in a way that reaches some people and not others. Um, yeah, I think that's important to realize. Yeah. Well, tell us about String Gym. Who's it for? Sure. Um, so String Gym is a course I designed for mainly violists. Um, and it is a modeled in many ways off of the VMC because it can't get better than the VMC. <laughs> um, so learn from the best. So for people that are really curious about the instrument, about growing um, as violists, that are interested in learning how to practice more intelligently in a way that's always going to trend towards improvement, um, for people that want to develop confidence in the beauty of their sound and feel comfortable physically on the instrument, I think especially for the viola, that's such a big issue. Um, of feeling physically comfortable. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm super excited about it. I'm super excited to have you as a guest master class for that, yes. that course. And uh, we've got some other great people, James Dunham from Rice University, Karen Richer from Manhattan School, a whole host of other people. Our former mentor, Ralph Fielding, is going to be doing class that picture two. on your field <laughs> just... I'm like really close to signing up, Travis. Oh, great. Yeah, okay. yeah. <laughs> I'll give you a discount, Kate. Really? Oh. <laughs> well, I was going to ask: Is there an age limit, or who can? No, there's no there's no age limit. Um, we've had people um, that were recently out of college, up all the way to people in their seventies, um, and everything in between. Um, and I've worked with students in that program of all levels of you know people that are relatively new to the instrument, and also people that have been playing for a really long time. Um, but that are, yeah, looking to work out their instrumental muscles and get a little stronger. Well, that sounds very, I would say, similar age range as, as what I've seen mm -hmm. in the, the Violympics and the Virtuoso Master course, too. I get that question so much from people. Am I too old for this course? And right. like, no, like, you're yeah. never too old for this course. Are you too old for the violin? Or <laughs> yeah. The viola? No. Where should people go to? They can go to my website, which is travis Merrill, M-A-R-I-L dot com, and they'll see a link for it there. Okay, we'll have that in the notes as well. And when does it? When does this iteration start? 
This one um, starts in just a few weeks here, mm -hmm. so it's going to be October 24th. We use the start date, so we have a few weeks. Um, it just opened for registration. Um, but if someone's hearing it right now and wants to join late, feel free to reach out to me. I'm happy to talk to them. Wonderful. Awesome. Thank you. Well, thanks again for making the making the drive up. Yeah, it was great. It's great to see you guys again. Yeah. So good to see you. <laughs> Too. Great. Thank you, Kate. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll see you next time on Stand Partners for Life. So much with the Algonquin round table. <laughs> <laughs> during that time, I practiced the viola every bit as much as Dorothy Parker did. Yeah. <laughs>